and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week where for the better part of six plus years and 350 plus episodes twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays, we release both video and audio episodes where Franklin Covey, the world's most trusted leadership firm, shines their four plus decade megawatt spotlight onto different thought leaders, sometimes in our company, sometimes outside of our company, on topics that we think will make you a better leader. Perhaps you are a formal leader inside of an organization, frontline, first level, first time or season. Perhaps you are a member of a not-for-profit committee or a social organization where you're in a formal leadership role, or maybe you're a stay-at-home dad or mom. You have a side hustle, but your job is to build a family life, and therefore you're a leader in that capacity. Whether you are formally or informally a leader, all of us struggle with this thing called life. The number of hours, the number of weeks we have in our life, how do we attune our attention and focus and discipline and set priorities? Franklin Covey, of course, is arguably one of the leading authorities on both personal and organizational productivity. We, of course, have written some of the biggest books in history around time management, including this book, The Five Choices to Extraordinary Productivity of Where Our Current Time Management Solution is based upon. Today we have someone that has a little bit of a counterintuitive approach to what you might call time management or productivity. You know him as Oliver Berkman. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book. He is a longtime columnist on the topic of productivity and time management. The book he has written is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Joining us from Northern English countryside today on a blistery winter afternoon, Oliver Berkman, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Oliver, you are a recognized thought leader, opinion leader on the topic of time management. You may or may not fashion yourself as a leadership management authority. You have been a writer and an opinion leader on this topic. You've written a column about this. What I would love to have you do is rewind a couple of decades and reorient all of our listeners and viewers to what has been your journey. Where do you have some well-placed ideas and expertise and kind of where do you put some boundaries on? Well, I'm not an expert on that, so don't confuse me. I think everyone likes to make sure that the listeners know what your fields of experience really cover. Sure, absolutely. I'll give it a go. I think there's sort of two levels to this, and the, I'll speak briefly about my sort of professional path, and then I might speak briefly about my kind of, I guess you'd call it psychological journey through life and treat you more as my therapist for 20 seconds, because I think that is an important layer to this. Now you're I've, talking, I've because worked... I love to process our guest pain. So I'm happy to serve <laughs> good, as good. your therapist. Let's, let's do a ton of that. Um, I, I started out um, after a sort of slightly... Uh, uh, trained to be an academic for a year or two, didn't really work out I, um, after college. I, I trained as a journalist. I worked in various different roles, primarily at the Guardian and Observer newspapers here in the UK. I did news. I, I ended up traveling to the to the US, which led eventually to living in New York for a, for a long part of my life until fairly recently. Um, so I did I did all sorts of journalism there, and and I. Gradually out of that began writing, first of all, longer magazine pieces, and then um, this column that I that I wrote for The Guardian Weekend magazine for, for many years, which had this title, This Column Will Change Your Life, which was partly meant as a joke. I spent many, many hours of my life, I think, explaining to people that it was meant as a joke. But anyway, a lot of what I did then was to sort of take a skeptical look at a lot of the personal development space, a lot of that literature, testing things out, finding my own 
sense of what worked and what didn't. So, you know, that's a deadline-driven culture. On a, in a certain way, it, I, was, I was sort of faced with the challenges of, of managing time quite, quite sort of immediately there. Um, but I think on another level, I've always sort of had, a, I guess, philosophical inclinations. And what I'm trying to do in my work, and especially in this book, is, is kind of acknowledge the sense in which time management is a much bigger thing than some people may kind of give it credit for, that really living a good and meaningful and useful and, and enjoyable life is a challenge of time management because we have this finite amount. We don't know what the finite amount is going to be. We have very limited control over it as well as limited quantity of it. And so in some ways, you can see all the questions, it seems to me, of, um, of, of life as in some sense time management questions. And, and I think for a long time as a younger adult, I really did think that there was going to be some kind of silver bullet system or technique or some new level of self-discipline that I was going to discover in myself that, uh, you know, was always going to be in the future. It was never quite where I was, but was going to solve all the problems of time management that I faced that was going to enable me to never have to disappoint anybody, to fulfill all the ambitions I had for my career, to sort of get my arms around everything. And what I'm trying to explore in this book is firstly, the fact that that's, I think, an impossibility and an impossibility that gets harder and harder, as it were, in the modern era. But secondly, that that was never the right goal here anyway. And that um, it's not bad news that we uh, cannot do everything, that we can't uh, optimize ourselves into kind of perfectly productive people. It's not going to happen. It makes you busier. It makes you more stressed. It makes you less focused on the things that matter. And by really facing up to our, our limitations, I think uh, we can live far more um, uh, calmer, but also more accomplished lives. Uh, and that is the journey, the very sort of personal journey that I've been on. And I try to sort of um, express what I've learned in, in written form, because that's, that's the only way I, I really know. I think. Facing up to our limitations is a mantra my wife would say to me I should focus on daily. Uh, let's talk about the importance of numbers. A lot of numbers matter in our lives. Our GPA, our SAT, ACT score, our 401k balance, our FICO score, our cholesterol level. You would argue the title of your book is 4,000 Weeks. This is a very important number to think about in our lives. I calculated that based on your projections. My number is 2680, meaning I've already spent 2680 hours, 80 weeks of my life. I have a mere 13, paltry 1,370 weeks to go if I'm lucky, way over mm -hmm. the hump. Explain to everyone why of all of the lenses, the, the, the context you chose to write about, is this idea of 4,000 weeks. Well, so on the one hand, I'm, I'm sort of really glad that I, and that we as a team of the publisher chose this title because it is, right, it's the, it's the, um, it's the average lifespan in the developed world rounded down to a uh, headline-grabbing round figure, right? So if you live to be sort of 80, you will have had a few more than 4,000 actually, but not very many more. And to be honest, even if you break records, even if you sort of live in your 110s, the number of weeks doesn't seem, doesn't go up as much as you think it would, right? It goes to like 
5,000 or 6,000 maybe, you know, if, if you really, really uh, are an outlier. So we, and of course, you know, tragically, many people are going to have fewer than that. I think putting it in 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 the context of uh, weeks, using that as the as the numerator, I guess is the word, um, is is really powerful because well, for me, if I state it as a number of days, right, then it will be a much bigger number. But it's very easy for a day to not feel precious, and it, nobody seems usually cares that much if they kind of waste a few days and they look back and think they don't know what they did with the last few days. On the other hand, I could state it as years, and then obviously you get far fewer. But it feels like a year is quite a hard thing to waste, to let pass by. Not that it doesn't happen, but it's a long enough period of time. What's terrifying to me about weeks is that um, on the one hand, the number is not very large, 4,000. On the other hand, it is incredibly easy to not know quite what happened to the last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven weeks of your life. So that's the title. I do then want to say, and we can talk about this if you're interested, right? The title is an, assert, is an attempt to slightly kind of, uh, you know, wake people up and maybe uh, scare people a bit. I don't think that the message of the book is time is so short that we should incredibly stressfully be trying to wring value out of every minute of it. I think it's almost the opposite of that. So I hope that it is a, a calming um message, even though the, the title is admittedly designed to, um, uh, you know, uh, grab people. Oliver, you're very credible on the topic. You have written about time management for many years. You have studied and researched every productivity book, every time management course. You can tell the difference between, you know, David Allen and Franklin Covey's productivity systems. You've tried them all. You write about them quite um, respectfully, but also frivolously, right, in terms of the 15-minute egg timer and the A, Bs, and Cs yeah. and the carry-forwards. There's so many different methodologies. Weekly planning, daily planning, Sunday planning, values-based planning, roles-based planning. All of those have some value for all of us. You kind of take a, a different look at time management in terms of what's most important? Where will you spend your attention? What are the things that you'll choose to neglect Will you talk about the importance of, in our lives, where we spend our attention is where we spend our time, and maybe, maybe shock everybody into doing some introspection around where are you spending your attention, because that's really where you're going to spend your weeks. Right, yeah, and then I will say a little bit about how I think about all these different techniques and systems, because I think there's an important thing that people sometimes sometimes miss, and I, I love talking about it. The... Uh, we, you know, I think we're we're more and more switched on in the modern world to this idea of attention as a as a resource. People understand uh, increasingly that social media platforms, for example, are not necessarily just these kind of wonderfully philanthropic organizations that exist to provide you with uh, all sorts of fascinating content, but that there is. Um, an economy here that if you're not, as the saying goes, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. That in some sense, our attention is being mined by all sorts of different uh, actors in the attention economy. Uh, and, and I think that is an important insight that a lot of people have. I do think it misses two things. Firstly, to call attention a resource is almost to um, not go far enough. No, because uh, when you think about other resources that we have in life, we, money, food, 
uh, intellectual resources. You need a certain amount of those. You can manage with with uh, lower amounts. You can maybe manage, you know, without almost any at all for certain periods. Whatever. Attention just is life. It, 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 it's more closely identified with life than, than any of those resources. What you do with your waking time on the planet just is what your life will have been. So, you know, it, it, it makes no sense, I would say, to think, to talk about having a problem if you never give any attention to that problem. It just doesn't exist, right? Or to say that you have a wonderful friendship if you give no time to that friendship. It, it's, not, it's not real. Um, and I think what, that, what makes that so important is that it does, it does really bring the focus onto the currency of, of, what we're, of what we're talking about here. It does make it very clear that... Um, if we end up spending large amounts of our attention on things that we don't feel that we value, then that is, on some level, misspending life. I do think people can get a bit um, insane about this and start to feel very self-conscious about the idea that they might be spending 20 minutes scrolling through their phone that they would rather not or, or you know, failing, desperately self-consciously asking themselves whether they're really present in the moment and all this stuff. I don't think it necessarily helps to kind of obsess about it. But I think as an organizing principle for um, how you're going to structure your days and what choices you're going to make in your career and the rest of your life, um, that, that currency of attention is a really great place to start. I do just want to say, and I won't go on about it unless you want to go deeper in on it. I think when it comes to all the different systems and techniques and methods of, of stewarding our time and therefore our attention, Although there are some really bad ones and plenty of really good ones, I think what really matters is the, the spirit that you um, adopt them in, right? The culture in which they're embedded or the attitude that you bring to them. Because I think a lot of the time we, um, certainly me in the earlier part of my life, we sort of jump on these systems as the thing that is going to save us from being finite. It's the thing that is going to somehow do an end run. Uh, it's an American sporting idiom I shouldn't use because I don't know if it's quite right, but it's a short circuit to get around the fact of our, um, of our finite natures, to avoid tough choices about time. And I think that's where any technique is going to go wrong. So if your prioritization system, just to give an example, um, is really about... Um, persuading yourself that you don't have to make any sacrifices in terms of your focus, as opposed to uh, helping you decide what you're going to focus on and as a result, what you're going to not focus on and let go of and neglect either forever or for the next quarter, next year. If it's actually just a way of trying to trick yourself into feeling like you're not um, a finite human, that's where it really is a danger because it's sort of enabling this delusion that will only lead you further and further from building the life that you that, that you want to build. If you're upfront about it and you're like, okay, yes, prioritization means I choose something to focus on. And that means I got to figure out what I'm going to be neglecting, what I'm going to give myself or my organization permission to, um, to, to not focus on. Then, then you're talking, right? Because then you're living authentically in the state of being a finite human uh, as, as we all are. Let's talk practically. You have earned and afforded a life that is perhaps maybe unrelatable to some, right? You are a, a, a writer, a thinker, an author. You've chosen to live a life probably a little more leisurely. 
than many Americans or in the Eastern world in terms of what you're doing now with your wife and son in Northern England, going for strolls, looking at sheep. I'm kidding. We had a, a nice offline conversation. Here's why I, I say that. I know lots that. of Americans who go for strolls, but anyway, carry on, yeah. No, I don't know a single American that goes for strolls, but I need more <laughs> of them in my life. I know that I'm not with three young sons. Here's why I ask. The, the majority of people listening are processing seven mortgage loans today, right? They're managing a, right. a, a team of outbound prospecting calls. They're, they're, a, they're an inbound call manager. They have productivity mm -hmm. output expert you know, measures and things. They have to have a system to do more. They have to be more yeah. efficient. They're being measured, they're being paid on that. Their avocation may not be their vocation. Mm -hmm. As you have written about and opined on and thought about and studied, ways to be more efficient. Your book really is more of a 30,000 view of what do you want your life to be about and how do you want to spend your attention and time. We'll discuss neglect in a moment. Yeah. What, what, what advice have you found has worked more ubiquitously than others around getting more of the right things done for people? Any, any, anything you've collated or curated from all of your research and writing to say, you know what, here's some hacks or some tools that I think are valuable for a broad swath of people who have to live their lives in a, in a, in a, in a efficiency mindset? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really, really well put question, I think. I mean, obviously, half of my mind wants to go off on quite a sort of philosophical response to it and say, what do we mean by have to? And I don't mean that people can just choose to live differently. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I, I do think there's, there's real merit in, in thinking very clearly about what choices you really do have in your life. There's a wonderful line in a book by a psychotherapist called Sheldon Kopp, where he says, actually, you're free to do whatever you want. You have only to face the consequences, yeah. right? So I think this is a very helpful lens for helping people see where they maybe do have choice, where they maybe do have the ability to walk away from certain situations that they might not think that they did, or if they don't, because their livelihoods are just dependent on that, to at least achieve a kind of psychological freedom from maddening impossible demands that get made on them, right? Because the fact is that if impossible demands are being made on you, then they're impossible. Even if you're feeling a lot of pressure to fulfill them, if they are literally impossible, you are still going to be making these choices. You are still going to be deciding what to focus on and what to neglect, uh, whatever um, you know, whatever people may may be demanding. In terms of nonetheless ways of really sort of maximizing the the the, the right choices about what to do with your time and to and to, to to use it efficiently, I think the group of techniques and strategies that I keep coming back to and that I've always been very impressed by, they all have in common this process of kind of making vivid and making visible the trade-offs that you're always making. So, um, you know, I think approaches involving Kanban workflow systems that many of your, uh, you know, listeners and viewers will be familiar with, um, approaches that involve uh, sort of stop doing lists as well as to-do lists. Uh, to give a very, very simple example for just personal task management that I know a lot of people have found beneficial and that I write about a bit in the book, just the simple, simple process of, of using two lists, one that is a master list of everything, the kind of David Allen, get it all out of your head, um, have, a, have a list of maybe hundreds and hundreds of items that are on your plate. And then the closed list, the, the sort of list that only has five slots on it and your job is to feed items from the long list 
into those five slots. And the rule is that you have to complete one of them and until and until you have done, you, you can't move another item from the from the long list onto the short list. Okay, that's a really simple version of it. And a lot of people will be like, ah, oh, but how does that work with multi-stage projects? And how does that work with team situations? And obviously it's a too simple method for many people. But what it has, what, what it is very useful to illustrate, I think, is that um, we are always making choices with our finite time, right? So if you, um, it, you know, how you use the eight, nine, seven, eight, nine hours that you're going to spend on, on, on work, there are always a million things that you are not doing that you could in principle have been doing. And it's about making those choices conscious and not living in this kind of delusional state of like, maybe if I really, really push and gun it, I'll get through you know, 10 times as much as I've ever gone through in a, in a day ever. And, and, and sort of relating more calmly to that situation of an, a, an unlimited supply of things to do and picking the few that are gonna count. The sort of most important tasks technique where you, you know, nominate three, four, five things that you're going to do at all costs that day. And it's sort of a much smaller amount of stuff than you think you might be able to get through, but it's the ones that really matter. That's another example of one of these strategies that involves sort of facing up honestly to uh, the situation. It's so funny because a lot of techniques certainly techniques I associate with Franklin Covey, certainly David Allen, they very often are not about, like if you read the original sources or listen to the original people talking about them, they're not claiming that these are ways to um, never have to make tough choices about your time. But we really chronically use them that way, right? On some level, when you make your huge getting things done brain dump, some part of you is thinking like, and this is the system whereby I'm going to get through it all. And, and I just want to say, it's not going to happen. It doesn't need to happen. If it did happen, it wouldn't even be the route to the most accomplished and fulfilling uh, and successful life. Uh, so it's about techniques that enable us to relate to that infinite to-do list in a way that accepts that it is an infinite to-do list. Oliver, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, 4,000 Weeks, because I think it makes you look at your life a little more soberingly around what is it you want to accomplish? What do you want your legacy to be? Where do you want to put your time and attention? Um, on New Year's Eve day, a very dear friend of mine passed away, Dr. Mark Goulston. He was a very famous LA-based psychiatrist, wrote numerous books about listening and relationships. He had cancer and went in for a a somewhat risky but life potentially saving bone marrow transplant. It was successful-ish. And then mm -hmm. he quickly caught an infection and died about that. I'm sorry and the outpouring of love was just um, consequential for this man. Because mm. he was also very clear about his roles in life. His roles were really where he put his time and attention. Um, indulge me for a minute more. Uh, yeah. Of all the things I learned from Franklin Covey's chairman of the board, Bob Whitman, who led this company for 25 years, including the crafting of all of our time management solutions, Bob was obsessed, if you will, with the roles that he played in life. In fact, he dressed in support of his roles, meaning he came to the office every day for 25 years in a dress shirt and a tie, but his dress shirt had a pocket in the front. And in this pocket was a series of small white cards. He never showed them to anyone. But you would see him take them out and take some notes, put them back in. And one day after many thousands of hours, 
trapped in his office as a member of his executive team, I asked him about his time management system. And he said, and he shared with me in kind of an intimate moment that all of these cards every day had different roles. How do I be the best husband? What does it look like being the best grandfather? What does it look like to be the best CEO or mentor or neighbor or an investor? Whatever his roles were. And every day he wrote down things he had to do in alignment with those five or six key roles in life. And for me, it was the most profound focus on how he was going to deliberately spend his time, what he was going to choose to neglect. And I think Bob is one of the best examples of investing and spending his 4,000 weeks based on what was most important to him. Now, as the CEO, you have some luxury in how you spend your time. Mm-hmm. How would you comment on the linkage between your roles in life and perhaps other as or more important lenses or priorities in terms of how people choose to manage their time? I mean, I think that um, the, the sort of role idea is a very, very powerful one. And it's a, it's a, it's a very good one because it does sort of create this awareness of the sense in which these these things are are zero sum in a way, right? That that um, you know certainly individual activities can can belong to multiple roles, but basically, if you are going to spend a significant portion of your week, uh, of your year, of your life uh, focused on a marriage, focused on parenting, then that is time you will not be spending focused on your career, focused on your um, hobbies, recreations, things like that. Um, and I think that, that anything like that basically is better than what we most naturally do, which is start with all the things that we want to try to accomplish and just sort of assume that there must be some way of getting them all done. And what happens when we do fall into that trap is not only that we neglect, obviously, certain roles um, because they feel like they can wait because they are not surrounded by the same urgency, um, very often, with very few exceptions, you know, um, the day-to-day work of parenting and relationships does not come with the same kind of, I need this done this second kind of um, urgency of professional life. And yet, you know, if you if you use that as your navigator, you will, you know, fatally neglect those those roles. Also, there's this phenomenon that I think we really should mention at some point, whereby it's very, very easy, even and perhaps especially for people who care about using their time well, to fall into this mindset of deferral, where what they're doing is they're working on getting things out of the way, getting things done for some future moment of fulfillment, for the time when they get the promotion, or they get married, or they retire, or the kids go to college, when, quote, real life is is going to begin in, in some sense. And I think this is almost universal. As I say, I think it is much more of a problem, actually, in some ways for people who think carefully about this stuff. Because if you're just a slacker who doesn't really try to do anything in life, it has certain advantages in terms of showing up and being present in the moment. So I think all of us who really care about using our time wisely have to be alert to this fact that at some point, if you are going to do meaningful things and have meaningful experiences in life, they're going to have to be right now in the present not later. And I think a focus like the one you describe on uh, the part of your um, Chairman. colleague is right. Is, is, right, is, um, is one that will sort of oblige you to realize that 
that your children's lives are happening now, that the life of your marriage is happening now, that the, the, the friendships you have is ha are happening now. And therefore, to act as a bulwark against that real risk, again, a risk that, to which we time management geek people are more prone uh, of sort of of putting off the meaning and the value of life to a point in the future that never actually arrives. Beautifully said. Let's talk about the power of burning bridges as it relates to uh, productivity or time management strategy. Expand on the concept of burning bridges and how, how do you mean that? Well, there again, you know, I think one of the other ways in which we're always trying to feel like we don't have to keep make tough choices is in the allure, the appeal of um, keeping our options open, right? There's, there's, there's always this desire to feel that if you keep some options open, you, um, you, you are freer than if you close options down. Um, but, well, firstly, I'm sure some people uh, will be familiar with the research findings. Uh, Daniel Gilbert, the Harvard psychologist, and others have, have really shown that um, people are much happier with decisions that they make when those decisions are irreversible, when they can't fret and worry about whether they should change their mind and do something different. But also it just stands to reason, I think, in a more sort of philosophical sense, you're always making choices and closing down options and burning bridges, by which I don't really mean, you know, needlessly insulting people you work with or something, but just sort of being willing to make irreversible decisions, decisions that it will be hard to back out of, making commitments, um, you know, embarking on career paths, leaving jobs, entering relationships, whatever it is. Um, it, it has the effect, again, of doing consciously something that you're already doing anyway, which is closing off a million options at every single moment of your life. So one thing that I've found very useful, and I know other people I've spoken with about it have found useful, as a way of kind of getting out of a procrastination phase or getting a team moving on something, getting, getting out of a rut, is to look for some kind of difficult to reverse decision that could be made about the project at, in it, at issue and to make it. It doesn't need to be a big decision, right? I think maybe the language of burning bridges implies grand gestures and things like that. But, you know, very, very simply, a, a really sort of banal example, if you're kind of an individual launching a website, for example, would be to decide on the platform that you're going to use to launch it, to pay the subscription and to install it, right? Very, very minor. It's not a big deal. But it is kind of a thing that it's relatively difficult to back out of. Of course, you can, but it sort of, it, it closes off a whole bunch of options. And that can then have a real sort of um, uh, snowball momentum effect, right? It becomes easier and easier to make these small decisions. And in the sense, they are all burning bridges. I think we all have this experience, right? You, 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 you worry deeply about buying your first house or apartment or, or whether to get married or whether to have children and all these kind of things that are so fraught and feel like your whole life is at stake. And as soon as you've made the decision, Almost always, it's just a question of, okay, well, this is my situation now, so let's get on and do the very best we can with it. And so there's a great sort of freedom in removing the possibility of doubling back and, um, and sort of, uh, you know, picking a, picking a different option and keeping trying to fine-tune the choice that you make. 
Oliver, I want to end on a bit of a personal note without this being macabre at all. Um, I think one of the greatest gifts we can be given in life is notice, meaning notice that you have a terminal disease. Notice that your time is going to be up because you you have a brain tumor or you have some kind of irreversible uncoverable um, disease versus you know getting hit by a car at three o'clock today or dying right. in my sleep tonight of an aneurysm. And so I, I say that with enormous deference and respect to those who are suffering that perhaps diagnosis or someone Absolutely. that they love is doing that. That's how I want to go. I want to be given notice. Like I want to know that I have a geoblastoma and I have you know a 10% chance of living and I probably have four months at the most. I don't mean that to be insensitive at all, but I think there is a gift in knowing being told, you probably have X number of weeks left. If you were told you had five weeks left, what would you do differently? Wow, it's a... Or what would you do more of? What would you neglect? Where would your attention be? Yeah, it's an extraordinary question, and it makes me... I mean, not that I have been under any illusions about this, but it makes me realize that, you know, uh, what a work in progress this kind of um, confrontation with finitude is because I don't think I have reached some kind of Zen perfection whereby what I already do now is, is what I would do because I've sort of aligned all my values so, so perfectly. Um, I think it's a cliche, right? It is the people in your life. And I think that what would happen in that moment would be that I wouldn't care one jot that it was a cliche, right? I mean, in our day-to-day lives, we're very prone to wanting to give advice or to consume advice that is somehow original and uh, is somehow unexpected. Uh, but um, I think most of us know on a, on a deep level that just sharing time with the people that mean the most to us um, and with the experiences and the landscapes and pets, you know, like the 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 sort of the elements of our lives that mean the most to us is all that we really want to do in that context. And I think it's all that I would want to do in that context. I do just want to say, again, absolutely with deep respect to anyone who's in this situation, I don't want this to sound like a frivolous point, but there is a sense in which we all have that notice, right? I mean, it's only a matter of um, timescales. It's only because... If you're in your 40s like me and you have not received that kind of information from a doctor, you think that the horizon is, you know, another 40, 50, maybe if you're incredibly lucky, 60 years or something. It's only because the, 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 it's sort of in the misty horizon that it feels possible to sort of go through your life thinking that you're going to live forever. Of course, we all know that none of us are. And um, so I think it is interesting to reflect on the sense in which we, we do all have that, that notice um, in our lives anyway, uh, and, and, what, and how that might uh, lead us to reorient some of our activities and how we're spending our time. Nicely said. I asked that question as we end here because last week I saw a fairly viral post on social media that talked about there was a professor, I think he was maybe a high school teacher, I'm not sure, and he had a terminal diagnosis, he was in the hospital, and his life was ending within about a 24-hour span. He knew this. There was a picture Mm -hmm. that his family had taken of him grading his last papers on his laptop, like with notice that his life was ending 
within 24 yeah. hours. And it was something he enjoyed. It was something he was committed right. to. It was something that was important to him. And I think it was even like mid-semester, so it wasn't like people were graduating, but it just got me right. thinking about how would I choose to spend my last few weeks differently if I had real notice. You would argue we all have notice because of the concept of finitude you talk about, but I think it's uh, valuable for all of us to think about that in the terms of our own 4,000 weeks. Oliver Berkman, you are the author of this New York Times bestselling book. The tagline is Time Management for Mortals. Thanks for making your investment in us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.